Today we're wrapping up our summer series. We've been looking at the life of Jacob. And what I want to do this morning is I want to share really, and I'll just tell you up front, it's a pretty different message today. It's a message that if you will hang with me to the very end, I truly believe it's going to be rich and rewarding for you. I think it'll be eye-opening for you. And I've been praying that it would be a life-changing message for you. When we get to the end, I will pose a question for you that I am hoping you will ask the rest of your life. But, to, but in order to get to that question, we have to go through a journey this morning. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21, it lists for us that Jacob was one of the heroes of the faith. And sure, there's others who did more. Sure, there's others who achieved more. Sure, there's others who had even greater faith than Jacob. But no one left such a lasting imprint. For nearly 4,000 years since his death, every time that someone mentions the name of Israel, they are paying unknowing tribute to Jacob. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to place Jacob into the larger context of biblical revelation. And again, uh, 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 this is something I'm hoping you will track with me this morning because we're going to get somewhere special at the very end. Now, you may know the Bible, a quick trivia for you. The Bible contains how many books? Does anybody know? 66 books of the Bible written by approximately 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years. And yet, this one Bible has one singular message from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And that is God's plan to bring salvation to the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. In one way or the other, everything in the Bible fits around this great theme, the Old Testament. The message is essentially Jesus is coming. The New Testament, the, or the, the, the Gospels are essentially Jesus is here. The, Acts, the book of Acts is essentially he has come. The epistles, the message is essentially he is Lord. And then, of course, Revelation tells us that he is coming again. Norm Geisler wrote a book, and it was entitled To Understand the Law, or excuse me, To Understand the Bible, Look for Christ. And in the book, he shows us how uh, the fact that Jesus can actually be seen in all 66 books of the Bible. And if you see the Bible correctly in this way, you'll see that Jesus is indeed the central focus. Maybe you've heard it said, history is actually his story. So the question for us this morning is, how does Jacob fit in? How does Jacob fit into God's larger plan to bring Jesus into the world? How do we get from, who we've been studying this morning, how do we get from, or this, this, this summer, how do we get from Jacob to Jesus? What's the connection between this heel grabber and the Son of God? And to get us to that connection, I want to start back in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. And back in the Garden of Eden, I think you might know the story, Adam and Eve, they ate the forbidden fruit. And by doing that, it brought sin into the world. And from that moment, sin began to wreak havoc upon everything that it touches or touched. God was determined to do something about it. There's no way in the world he would let the evil one, he would let Satan win the battle for earth, to win the battle for hearts and souls and minds. And so the rest of the Old Testament is actually the gradual unfolding of God's plan to counter what happened in the Garden of Eden. 
You see, the Old Testament is first and foremost God sharing with you and I His redemptive plan for the world. And back in that garden, after Adam and Eve had sinned, they had, they had disobeyed God. That's what sin is. God made Adam and Eve a promise. And that promise was vague. But it was the first glimmer of hope after their fall. And that promise that God made to Adam and Eve can be traced across the centuries as God slowly began to reveal more and more of his plan and the details of the plan. Now, the essence of the plan was essentially that God would do something about sin. God would do something about our sin by, some, by sending someone to the earth. But how and when and where, that's kind of what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about God's solution to the sin that entered into the world. And so God kicked this off by, sent, by telling us he would send us a Savior who would be part of the human race. Now, here's what I want to do this morning. I'm hoping you'll take some notes. If, if you don't normally do so, because again, where I'm headed, and, and for you to be able to track with me, because I, I, I fear I might lose you throughout it, and I'll try to bring you back a little bit. But, uh, but I hope if you take notes, it'll help you tra track with me. I'm even going to try to jot a couple of those down up here so that we can kind of follow along, because we're going to take you through this journey. God starts, his first solution is saying the Savior is going to be a member of the human race. God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity, which is friction or hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his verse. Uh, excuse me, you <laughs> will strike his heel. My brain's moving ahead. This verse tells us God's plan for redemption. It tells us that God's plan was centered on a specific person who would be a man. In other words, it won't be an angel. It won't be some supernatural creature from, you know, Krypton or Cybertron or, you know, Valhalla or something. It would be a man. The Savior would enter the human race by being born of a woman that he would do battle with Satan, that Satan would strike a blow against him, that he would appear victorious, but ultimately the Savior would crush Satan and his power. So Genesis 3, verse 15, for all of us is that first link in the chain that's eventually going to lead to Bethlehem. And the first is this, is that the Savior would be a human. The Savior would be a human. The second solution to sin, see God's going to begin to narrow this down. The Savior will come from the Semitic people. Now, after the flood, uh, who did God let get, go through the flood? What was his name? Noah, right? Noah and his family. Noah had three sons. And the descendants of one of his sons, Shem, he would be the father of the Semitic people, not his two other sons. So the second part of this we learn in this passage, Genesis 9, 26, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. And so we learn that, that the Savior would come from the Semitic people, the descendants of Shen. God's next solution to our sin is that this person would be a son of Abraham. Many years later, you know the story, right? Abraham's living in the land of Ur, and, and God reaches out to him. He's a descendant of Shem. God reaches out to him and says, I want you to go to a far, faraway place, and when you get there, I'm going to bless you, and it's going to be the promised land for you. And so now, God narrows the scope here. 
But the Savior would be from all of humanity, but be zeroed in on one person. The Deliverer must come from Abraham's descendants. And you see God confirm that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. So next we discover that the Savior will be a son of Abraham. A son of Abraham. Next, God's solution is the Savior will be a son of Isaac. Now, Abraham had two sons, right? What was the first son, Isaac? What was the second son, anybody know? Ishmael. And God tells us in Genesis 21 and 22 that the promise of the Savior will come through Abraham's descendants, specifically the child of promise, and that is Isaac. So he will be a son of Isaac, not Ishmael. By the way, last night, uh, uh, Heather, my wife, had her birthday, and so we went out to celebrate, and, and our, our waiter's name was, was Ishmael. And so my, my son, uh, Cam, looked at him and said, hey, do you have a brother named Isaac? <laughs> and so then they kind of got into this whole conversation about the Bible and this, and that's where it came from, and he's like, oh, you weren't the chosen one, man. You were the outcast. No. <laughs> he didn't do that, luckily. But if he did, it wouldn't have surprised me, but okay. <laughs> He'll be a son of Isaac. Next, as we narrow the field, he will be a son of Jacob. Isaac had two sons. We know that from looking at the story this summer, right? What were the two sons? Jacob, and who was the other one? Esau, and we saw his story this summer. We saw how Esau was the child born first. And so he should have received the birthright. He should have received the blessing. But we saw that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. And later God confirmed the matter in Bethel when he told Jacob what he had told his grandfather Abraham. Genesis 28, 14. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So this Savior, this Deliverer, this Messiah will be a son of Jacob. The line's been narrowed again. I hope you're kind of hanging with me and tracking with me. I know some of you, I can see the eyes are glazed over, but trust me, if you'll hang with me, we're going somewhere here. God then tells the Savior, or tells the people that the Savior will come from the tribe of Judah. How many sons did Jacob have? Anybody know? He had 12 sons. And so by birthright, his first son Reuben should get, you know, should be the child of promise, but Reuben didn't receive the blessing because he sinned and was passed over. Simeon and Levi, number two child, number three child, were also passed over because of their sin. We didn't continue any longer in our story this summer, but we would have seen that, those sins of, of Jacob's children. So Jacob spoke up to his fourth son, Judah, in Genesis chapter 49. It's an amazing passage, verses 8 through 12. It's regarded as one of the greatest messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, something you might want to make note of. And Jacob saw with eyes of faith the tribe of Judah. So as he blessed his son Judah, he saw the tribe of Judah that it would take leadership in Israel and that it would actually rule over the 11 tribes or the 11 tribes would follow Judah. One of the particular verses in that passage is very specific. Genesis 49, verse 10, and it says this. It says the scepter, and the scepter is a, is a sign of royalty. You know, it's a sign of being, you know, in the leader in charge, the king, the kingship. The scepter, the kingship, will not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now that phrase, to he to whom it belongs, could also be the word, some of your translations might say Shiloh, and that just depends on how you interpret that passage. No matter where you go, there's, there's, uh, there's a case for meaning to him who it belongs, or it can also mean Shiloh. Uh, we're not going to dive into that this morning, but the main point is this, the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, would come from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah. God's narrowing the path here. Next, he gets a little more specific. And he tells us this. He said from the tribe of Judah, he says there'll be a specific descendant or a lineage where it will come from. 1 Samuel chapter 16, maybe you know the story. Saul, God rejected Saul because he was disobedient to, to God as the, as the king of Israel. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And God instead chose the son of Jesse, the son of David, from the tribe of Judah to be the king. Anybody know who the son of Jesse was? Anybody know? King David. King David. So the Savior will be from the tribe of Judah, and specifically within that tribe, he will be a descendant of David. God shows this to us and gives an amazing promise to David. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 7, he says, The Lord himself will establish a house for you. He goes on in verse 12, he says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. Now catch this verse. Fascinating verse. You and I on this side of the cross, we understand it more than they did but verse 16, 2 Samuel 7, it says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's some interesting language. That David's house and kingdom and throne will last forever. But, but what person could fulfill the forever requirement? Hmm. Many years pass. As the as the Israelites wait for their Messiah, their Savior, their Deliverer. Then in the days of King Ahaz, God once again decides to narrow the line. And this time he specifies how the Savior, the Deliverer, their Messiah will enter into the world. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. So the Savior will be born of a virgin. Uh, tribe of Judah, we forgot this part. Descendant of David, born of a virgin. Then God gives us even more. He says, I want to tell you where specifically this Messiah, Savior, Deliverer will be born. And where will he born specific, be born specifically? What city? Bethlehem, good. We all know the Christmas story. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now I want you to listen to Mike, Micah 5, verse 2. In fact, let's look at it together. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of who? Of? Of Judah. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Or another translation, from, eter from eternity past. It's very interesting. 
This ties directly back to the passage we looked at, Genesis 49.10, that talks about a ruler coming from the tribe of Judah, that the scepter will not depart from Judah. And we learn that in this passage. And so you see, born of a virgin and also born in Bethlehem. How do you spell it? I know I'll mix an E or an A or something like that. So what you and I have is a picture, an amazing portrait of our Savior, our Messiah, of God's solution to our sin. The promise is going to start wide, and it's going to narrow. It starts with a member of the human race, to then a descendant of Shem, to Abraham, who is a, a descendant of Shem, who has become what we call a Jew, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to the tribe of Judah. Within that tribe of Judah to, to, one of the, this, to David and to a descendant of David who would be born in Bethlehem, uh, born of a virgin, and who will ultimately rule and reign on David's throne forever. I hesitate to ask this question, but are you tracking with me? Some of you are, some of you are like, absolutely not. <laughs> I get it. Hang with me. Go back and watch this week. But keep going with me. Don't give up on this yet. It's, it's leading us somewhere. Now, who's going to fit all the qualifications? First of all, raise your hand if you're a human. All right, so hey, we all reached the first one. But as you start to, I ask, you know, who's a Semitic, son of, son of Abraham, son of Isaac, as you start to narrow the field, there's only one person who gets all the way down to the end. And that's Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Isn't that true? He's the one who meets the qualifications. His name is Jesus. So I ask you, where does Jacob fit into this whole equation of Jesus? What's his link to this redemptive story of God? How is he part of the equation? Well, it's very interesting. And you might know the story, the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1. An angel from God, Gabriel, appears to Mary and says to Mary, Mary, you've been chosen by God to give birth to the Messiah, to the Savior. And notice what the angel said to, to uh, Mary. Verse 33, it says, He, meaning the Messiah, will reign over the house of who? House of? Jacob. Forever. You know what this says? It says, although Jacob died some 1,800 years before the Christmas story in Bethlehem, Jacob was, in fact, a Bethlehem. He was there in the person of this direct physical descend descendant, this infant called Jesus. He was there when Jesus was born as the son of Jacob to rule over the house of Jacob. But there's more to this link with Jacob and Jesus. The first time Jesus came, John chapter 1 verse 29 tells us that, that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But when Jesus returns to the world, the Apostle John in Revelation describes him in a different way. In chapter 5 verse 5 of Revelation, John says this, that Jesus will return as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, which is a reference back to Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, when Jacob went before Judah, his fourth son, and he blessed him. 
And in Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, when he talks about this coming Messiah, he talks about him as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's an incredible story to me, at least. The story of redemption that stretches all the way from from the beginning, from Genesis, and goes all the way to the very end, to Revelation. History is his story. It's a story that grabs me every time I pause and do what I did this morning. I go, oh Lord, this is amazing. How you've done this and how you have worked and how you've narrowed it. I'm curious, uh, did anybody this summer see uh, the movie Dunkirk? Anybody see that? Okay, a bunch of you saw it. Now, here's what I, get, what I will guess. If you did not read about the movie before you saw the movie, chances are you were confused. Now, be honest, if you saw it and you didn't know what was going on, you would have been confused. Now, I read about it before, and I'm glad I did, because what I discovered is that the, that the, uh, um, uh, um, the, the director, I just lost his name, the Batman guy, um, Nolan, Nolan, Christopher Nolan, of course, um, uh, as, he, as he did the story, he told it in three ways simultaneously. What took place in the movie was you were watching one part of the act, the scene, was taking place over, over one week. And one part of the story, the act was taking place over one hour. And then the final part, one part of the story was taking place, I mean, one week, one day, and one hour. Some of you are like, oh, that's why it was so confusing. Yeah, so that was all kind of going on, and the director did that. And so I'm kind of doing that now with you. We see this picture, but I want to go back into a kind of another act and set the stage and keep us moving forward. So track with me like you're kind of watching Dunkirk and you're like, okay, I get that part, now I want to go narrow. Because what I want to do is I want to look at Jacob and Esau again. One last time. And see how the arc of history through their lenses and through their lives intersects all the way down here in the story of Jesus and the redemptive story of God. We know because we looked at them this summer that these two boys were completely different from the moment of their birth. That Esau came out first and Jacob came out grabbing his heel. And it set a pattern that never changed. That Esau was essentially the leader and he was a leader type. And Jacob was the kind of the follower and the heel grabber type. Here's a question. Whatever happened to Esau? We know all about Jacob. We're the Bible. We 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 know all about his story. What happened to Esau? Well, we know according to Genesis 36 what happened. That he moved to the hill country of Seir and he became the father of the Edomite people. And he founded a vast kingdom that flourished long before Israel eventually comes out of Egypt, out of their slavery. Genesis 36 is all about that. Verse 43 sums up Genesis 36 and says, This is the family line of Esau, the father of the Edomites. In other words, Genesis 36 is telling us about Esau's incredible worldly success. He was not a failure from the standpoint of people looking at him and what he's accomplished in life. The dozens of names that are found in Genesis 36, they testify to his greatness. They testify to his ability to build this incredible nation, a great nation, to rally people to his cause. He had leadership qualities and to establish a nation that lasted for 2,000 years. 
But Genesis 37 verse 1 simply says about Jacob that Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. Which is actually meant to be a part of Genesis 36. And I think Moses, who's the author who writes this, is trying to contrast us here. That Esau in his lifetime and subsequent to that was this incredible person, incredible leader. People followed. He was successful in the eyes of the world. And Jacob, well, Jacob in his lifetime just continued to struggle while Esau rose to prominence and fame and power and prestige. How'd that happen? Why'd that happen? Well, Jacob chose to walk with God and to seek God's blessing. And we're learning that Esau chose to despise his, we know, despise his birthright, despise his blessing, and choose the world and what the world offers instead. And Esau, Moses lets us know when he writes Genesis 36, Esau got the world, but Jacob got the Lord. One commentator stated it this way, he said, secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. Another commentator said this, the promised spiritual blessing demands patience and faith and emphasizes that while wait, that Waiting while others prosper is a test of faithfulness and perseverance. Let me say that again. Waiting while others prosper, that's called a test of perseverance and faithfulness. And that's what, that was the story of Jacob. For his entire life, he seemed to come in second to Esau. He didn't have the success that his older brother had. He didn't have the worldly fame and success of his brother. And for many generations after, the sons of Esau appeared to outshine the sons of Jacob. Centuries pass. And the Edomites are a strong nation. But the Israelites eventually become a nation in their own right. But they've been living in slavery. In the land of where? Where are they living? Egypt, right? It's time for them to head out of Egypt. God raises up, raises up a leader. We know his name. What's his name? Moses. He raises up Moses to lead the people out. They are heading back to the promised land that they had been centuries prior. And they want to head to the promised land. And in order to get there, they have to pass through a land, through a region, through a territory. If they can go through this territory, it would be the easiest, the fastest, the most convenient to get you know, a million, two million people ahead. It's the land of Edom. Uh-oh, those are the descendants of Esau. And the Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 20, verse 18, listen what the Edomites say to the Israelites as they're trying to get into the promised land. They say, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. This verse describes the animosity that existed between Jacob and Esau literally across the centuries. And so once Israel made it to the promised land, the Edomites were one of their worst enemies. There was constant conflict and bloodshed and warfare and hatred and hostility. The sons of Jacob and the sons of Esau, they never got along. They never trusted each other. They were never friends. They never liked each other. Now, if you've been able to track with me this morning, I want to bring you to that third piece kind of the zeroing in. And I hope you have been able to track with me. If you haven't, I'm going to encourage you to open your eyes back up and stop looking at your phones and join me. And let's track with this final part because this is where it gets interesting, at least to me. 
We come now to the Old Testament era, the end of it. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament era, Edom is now conquered by, anybody want to take a guess? It's the country that conquered everybody at that time. What's the country? The Romans, right? The Romans took over, they conquered everything. And so the Edomites in that were also conquered. And that whole region around Edom was called Edomia. And an Edomite was appointed to be the king of Edomia, of that region, under the Romans. And then over time, his descendants, they ruled. They considered themselves, because this is the area of the promised land, they considered themselves to be Jews. But the Jews viewed the Edomian kings as half-breed imposters. Oh, they're, they're Edomians, they're Edomites, they're, 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 you know, they're sons of Esau. Then one dark night in Jerusalem, two kings meet up face to face. One sat on a throne, heir to a vast fortune, ruler of the land, surrounded by his soldiers. The other didn't sit, he stood before him, dressed in the simple clothes of the common man. The king, or the ruler on the throne, ruled over an earthly empire. The other king claimed to rule over the hearts of men. One king could snap his fingers and call a legion of of soldiers just like that. The other had no army except an uneducated group of Galileans, mostly fishermen and farmers. The one sitting on the phone was the king of the Edomians. The one standing claimed to be the king of the Jews. Yes, that night, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son, really, of Jacob, stood before Herod Antipas, the son of Esau. And just like in the past, the son of Esau appears to have the upper hand while the son of Jacob appears to be out of luck once again. The man on the throne, Herod, he had heard about this this rabbi from Nazareth. He had heard about his healings and about his teachings, and he was curious, he was fascinated. And so he asked Jesus to perform miracles. He asked Jesus to speak up. But the Bible tells us that Jesus performed no miracles for Herod. And when Herod questioned Jesus, Jesus would not answer him. Why? Jesus answered others. Why didn't he answer Herod? Because Jesus knew that Herod, like his ancestors and his ancestor Esau, he had no sense of pure and holy and godly values in his life. Sure, he was curious, but he wasn't even remotely hunger, hungry for the truth. Like Esau, Herod was only hunger, hungry for the things of the world and what the world offered him. Well, Herod, he finally gave up questioning Jesus. He joined his soldiers in mocking Jesus. And if you remember the story, it was Herod and his soldiers who put on Jesus the the robe, the kingly robe, and they sent him out and sent him back to Pilate, whom sent Jesus out to die. Jesus was crucified that Friday. The sons of Esau, it appears, have finally defeated the sons of Jacob. But on that Sunday, the world was turned upside down, wasn't it? Because this son of Jacob rose from the dead and later ascended into heaven. And Jesus took 
or Jesus' followers took that message of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and spread it to the ends of the earth. What happened to Herod? This son of Esau. Four years later, Herod was overthrown and he was sent into exile. He was a forgotten man. He ended up simply a footnote in history whose only claim to fame was that he participated in the trial of the son of Jacob, the savior of the world. Herod became a nobody. Jesus, the son of Jacob, what happened to him? Became the very centerpiece of human history. The Edomites are gone today. But to this day, Jesus reigns as the king of kings. He reigns as the Lord of lords. And he waits in heaven for his return to earth as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I think that deserves an amen. Amen. Praise God. And so I finish the story asking you a question. It's a question I hope you'll hold on to the rest of your life. I hope it's a question you'll ponder in light of what God has done for you. And the question is simply this. Are you a son or daughter of Jacob? Or are you a son or a daughter of Esau? Son or daughter of Jacob? Or son or daughter of Esau? All of humanity has been divided into the two groups. Sons of Esau, sons of Jacob. And the sons of Esau are the ones who have the world and they have everything that the world offers and they might appear successful and they might appear like they have everything going for them. And they have the appearance like life is good. But on the inside, they're empty. They're broken. Without peace, without joy. And they're lost. Or the sons of Jacob, who may or may not have worldly wealth, But they have chosen to bow their knees to King Jesus, to crown him Lord of all. They have surrendered all to Jesus. And they are rich. They are rich with the joy and the peace of the Lord on the inside. They are the true descendants of Jacob. And they are saved for eternity. Which line are you in? Are you in the line of Esau? Or are you in the line of Jacob? Last week we talked about drawing a line in the sand and today's a day I'm asking you, draw a line in the sand. Where do you fall? Are you in the line of Esau? I'll tell you this. The Bible tells us every single person by default is in the line of Esau. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, it says that all have sinned. Every person has sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says what we earn, what we deserve, the wages for that sin is death, eternal separation from God. We are all by default in the, in the, in the line and lineage of Esau. But God invites you today, if you haven't already done so, to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ the lion of the tribe of Judah. If you've done so, God invites you back today to recommit your heart to him, to the lion of the tribe of Judah. Are you a son of Esau, a daughter of Esau, or a son or daughter of Jacob? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, 
As we pray right now, God, I pray that today is a day where your kingdom grows. And that there are people here this morning that your Holy Spirit has been working on them today, this week, this summer. And they're ready to surrender and bow their hearts and lives to you. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you believe in him, you've believed about him, you believe he's a good teacher, but you have never come to the point of full surrender. You haven't crossed the line to be a child of God, a son or daughter of Jacob. If you were ready to ask Jesus in your life, I'm going to pray, ask that you pray with me. It's not even that you pray the exact words, it's more that you'll mean it in your heart. Would you pray something like this? Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to save me, to forgive me of my sins. That I know I'm in the line, the lineage, as a child of Esau. But God, today I'm ready to surrender to you to give my life to you. And as best as I know how right now in faith, Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I surrender to you. Thank you for saving me, for making me a child of God, for making me a descendant, a child of Jacob. And help me now to live out this faith in a God-honoring way. In Jesus' name, God, I pray that your kingdom has just grown, that angels in heaven rejoice. And God, for those of us who need to recommit our hearts to you in the stillness of this moment, we rededicate to you. We recommit. We are your child. We've surrendered to you. And we want to live that out fully in our life. God, right now we come to give you our offering. Use this for your glory. Use this to grow your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.